Hi there. Welcome to How to Break Free from Alcohol and Cocaine. My name is Will, and on the 16th of May 2018, I decided to stop drinking. Throughout this podcast, I'm going to take you on a journey from my darkest moments with alcohol and drugs all the way to what life looks like now. I hope you enjoy this, but even more so, I really hope it helps. Welcome back. So up until now on this podcast, I've been sharing my views, my journey, and my experience with alcohol, drugs, and sobriety. Whereas now I think it's going to be incredibly useful to hear someone else's opinion and someone else's journey. Today, I'm going to be talking to Mike. Mike is an old friend from high school, and a couple of years ago, he reached out to me, telling me he'd also stopped drinking. I loved his views. It was incredibly positive and incredibly insightful. We would have amazing conversations about this subject, and I felt like I just had to record it. So without further ado, this is mine and Mike's recent conversation. I was actually excited to have you as the the first person on this podcast purely because we had such a, a similar upbringing in terms of you know the area we grew up in the kind of you know we went to school together we were briefly in a band together we had a lot of the same I guess influences so I think the first thing I wanted to ask you was kind of what was that like for you in terms of those early years the teenage years and your relationship with alcohol and how did it kind of evolve over those years yeah, I mean, I think that in many ways, starting drinking was a function of being a teenager, growing up in, you know, the relatively the middle of nowhere, and a lot of rec- recreation being around, hanging out at your friends' houses, trying out drinking together, and then also when you start having social events, parties, things like that, and being just a ball of anxiety teenager. Yeah. And and <laughs> realizing after your first beer that I feel a lot less anxious now. I mean, was that similar for you? Did you find that that's kind of how it started? It just made you feel less conscious. Yeah. I mean, it was it was definitely one of the reasons why I guess my drinking got to where it did was because of man being a teenager sucked. I was anxious about everything. You know, you're not sure about who you are, or, and when you drink, you feel like you can just relax. That's exactly why I loved it so much. It was an escape. Yeah, I mean, that's where it began. I think that growing up, living in the US now, they start drinking a little bit later. I mean, I remember alcohol being at the dinner table with my mum and dad and going out to restaurants. And it made it feel less of a big deal to start drinking. And then once once I really started, it was kind of like a race to, okay, we'll try beer, try spirits next and see what happens. And it didn't really take form of being so much of a, a real crutch, though, I think, until a little bit later, like 18, 19, starting yeah. to go out and, and after school and figuring out who I wanted to be as an adult. And then it was pretty much there was no social context that was about drinking, you know? Yeah. Well, I think personally speaking, you know, we spent a lot of those teenage years drinking together. And I remember there was a lot of parties at your house. I'm sure you remember quite a few at my house. Yeah. And you would never think in those early years that drinking was really that wrong because not only did both our parents and almost every adult we knew drank, but also everyone else was doing it around that time as well. So it's kind of hard to see this as something that's not right. 
I guess in my mind, I'm not sure about you, but in my mind, it was just an, an age factor. It wasn't about what you were doing. It's just like you had to be a certain age before it became completely okay. Yeah. Which, yeah, uh, I think that's right. It's kind of, it can be quite confusing because, you know, we were going out, you know, we were going to pubs when we were 15. And, you know, thinking back now, if I was a bartender and a 15 year old came in, I'm like, I definitely would not serve them any alcohol. <laughs> yeah, we got away with it for a long time and uh yeah i feel like that was that was kind of destructive to us to be be okay with drinking that much at that age but then as soon as you turn 18 it's like well now it's legal there can be no issues with it which was kind of the the illusion i found so you suddenly went okay well i can drink whenever i want however much i want because now it's legal that's the only thing that was holding me back yeah i think there was very much this illusion that because we were drinking with permission of adults that there's it's all all right we grew up in an environment where you've got tv shows like skins which is very much glorifying like yeah. teenage drinking culture you know you go to music festivals sponsored by beer companies everything at that very impressionable age is very much driving you in the direction of drink beer have fun definitely not to say that you don't have fun when you drink beer but it, it fast becomes the method. It becomes the vehicle. It becomes the main leading function of having fun and being social. And to not do that was boring. 100%. And especially for us, because, you know, we both played an instrument. We love music. We still do love music. For me, one of the most exciting times and still to this day, the most exciting time is watching live music. And yeah. very rare to go to anything like, um, uh, what was that venue? The Sugar Mill in, uh, mm -hmm. in Henley. I remember I got there. And there was the first time I went there, I was 15 years old. And I remember a couple of guys were there from, I think, the year above you. And they were just smoking a joint in the open and they just passed it to me. And I thought, yeah, this is just, it just seems so normal. And what I think about that years on is, you know, there's some people, probably friends of yours. I know friends of mine who mm -hmm. were the same amount of us back then. But as they got older, it kind of slowed down. It wasn't that big a deal. And they kind of, I guess, grew out of it in a way. Whereas yeah. for me, it kind of went the other way. I, I didn't seem to grow out of it. It just seemed to get worse. The more I've kind of looked into this and the more I learn about this is your physiology, your chemistry, your genetics play a massive role, or at least I believe they do, in how that relationship then evolves. Because I couldn't understand when people would go out for one drink or two drinks and be like, yeah, that's enough. I'm going home. For me, I would have that. And I'd think, well, we've got to go out now. We've got to We've got to get more and more and then you end up getting drunk even though you might only just be going for one drink how does that kind of resonate with you is was it similar i definitely grew up with family members that acknowledged having a problem with drinking you know my grandfather had been uh, in aa uh, and we didn't really talk about it it was all taboo you know we didn't yeah. talk about drinking or having a problem with drink and i, I remember the odd cautionary tale and, and my mum and dad it was really funny. They had no problem with the amount of beer that I drank. But if I ordered a, a James, Jameson, they're like, liquor, that's that's gonna, that, that's the, what alcoholics do kind of thing. And I was like, yeah. Well. But there was this idea that alcoholism runs in the family. And I definitely have, you know, family members in the past have had similar issues with, with drinkers as myself. Nevertheless, I, I look back at my path and go, okay, well, Yes, maybe I was predispositioned, but I also just from you know growing through this and not drinking anymore and thinking about the root causes, so much of it was motivated by the anxiety I felt of being a teenager, the 
the things that I was confronting as I grew up and then, you know, things that I struggled with reconciling as I grow up, it became the solution to that. So I think it's, it's a combination, you know, I think there's a little bit of nature and a little bit of nurture going on in there. Yeah. hundred percent agree with that. And tell me, cause yeah. you were, you moved to the U S you now live in the U S what age yeah. you moved over. Gosh, I, I mean, I moved overseas when I was probably 22, 23, I moved to Spain for three years. And actually there is, you know, there is a drinking culture in Spain, but it, it's definitely not the binge culture that I think that you and I grew up with. Yeah. Um, nevertheless, I was hanging out with a bunch of other, you know, British youngsters, early twenties, and there was a lot going out, there was a lot of drinking. And how did your uh, relationship with alcohol change through from England to Spain to the US? Yeah, I mean, I think that every time you move full stop, you you, you kind of dislocate from a lot of community and connection. And I oftentimes contextualize my needs to drink as an absence of connection. So you you move to a new place, you move to new surrounds, you've not got the same peer group that perhaps you had. And I found myself going out and going to the pub a lot to establish a new friendship group. And every single one of those situations involved booze. So there was there was definitely the prompt of okay, I'm in this situation, I need to put myself out there a little bit. And, and that came along with drinking. But on top of that, there is the anxiety of those moves. There are mm. they're big, they're big changes in your life. And I was affected by the actual life event. And then in terms of Spain, for sure, I, I mean, people were going out from work at lunchtime and having a beer. You know, it was kind of omnipresent. The US, when I moved out here, I moved here to go to university finally and had that a little bit of a later experience of that university experience, which you went to uni for a few years, right? And you yeah. you go to university, you don't have a day job, although I, I did, but most people don't. And every, kind of the MO is study as much as you need to study and then spend the rest of time out socializing and forming a peer group and drinking. So most of my 20s were very much focused around alcohol as a function of having a, a social group. You know? It'd be interesting to hear what the the university in the US was like, because for me, that was, as a memory, one of my uh, least favorite was university, simply because there was so much pressure to drink to the point that we were drinking or going out almost every night. You know, you can't function, let yeah. alone have some sort of discipline or control in your life, such as you know, in school, there's so much control. You go to the classes, you have to be here, you have to do this. University, they give you that freedom as an adult to be like, well, it's up to you, you come to what you want. But when you're also in a position like I was, where you're battling going out and drinking every night to cover up anxiety, to find friendships, there was no way I could uh, balance the two of them. And, and it ultimately, after a couple of years, left me getting kicked out of university because I just, I didn't show up to anything. I didn't have the grades. Although at the time it seemed like such a negative event for me, it had so many positives that came from it. But how was that the the culture of it in a university in America? Very much the same. Uh, I think for for the traditional undergraduates, your 18s to 21s, a lot of that socialization is happening behind closed doors in apartment buildings, and that comes along with its own, I think, problems. You know, you're not being held to normal public standards of decency. 
So I think for, for that experience really wasn't for me. I didn't really involve myself in a lot of the undergraduate group socializing because I felt like I'd done that in the UK as a teenager, you know. But I was in New York City for university and, you know, the cliche of the city that never sleeps and my peer group were all a little bit older. I was spending time with a lot of graduate students. I was playing for the university rugby team, which is, as you know, a sport that goes hand in hand with drinking beer. And yeah. so, yeah, I was going to school every day. I was working for a few hours every day and every night without fail was in the pub. And and a lot of the time closing out the pub and closing out the bar and that does its own financial damage. But I think I was just constantly fighting the, the yesterday, you know, what I'd done yesterday, the way that I made myself feel by staying out until three in the morning and then shock horror having anxiety the next day because I drank last night. And so the cycle repeats. But yeah, I think that I think the university culture is pretty similar. In the, yeah. UK, in the US just it, it does sound like it. and especially when you say you know you joined the rugby team for me that was such a big area watching the trials for the rugby team and then you had the initiations and then the culture was so ingrained with alcohol and, and some of these crazy things that people had to do which could be you know demoralizing and just completely destructive to someone's mental health and it was all part of the game it was it was seen as so normal where I think me now in my mindset if i was to see it again i would i would be just so upset by seeing people degrade themselves purely just to make onto a sports team it, it seems so crazy now but at the time it's it's so institutionalized you think oh this is just this is normal this is what you have to do yeah. you can't go against it because then you're going against potential friendships in a scenario where all you're trying to do is make friends so it can be really destructive for a lot of people but yeah so then you you were in the US for quite a while. How did your, when you left university and started working, what did your drinking look like then? For me, after university, bear in mind that I did go to university a little bit late. So I was leaving, I was graduating much later into my 20s. For me, my professional life has always been self employed. And part of that is that I've always been driven to want to. to grow my own business but I honestly think part of the motivation is that I accountable certainly in my 20s to somebody else yeah. and I got I don't know if you've ever been fired I've been fired twice and both times it was because of <laughs> something to do with drinking and um, you don't have that when you're self-employed and so for me um, it blurred the lines of what was acceptable, what I could get away with. I would still have to interact with clients or other people that I was uh, working with employees or kind of other people that I started companies with. And I let a lot of people down, honestly, you know, I was very charismatic and, and very driven, but it was not infrequent for me to miss a meeting, to be late to be unreliable and that was so out of line with who I felt I was inside and who I wanted to be but a lot of that working for yourself comes with you know who's ultimately going to hold you accountable who's going to hold you responsible for those things um I was lucky I had people that I I worked with that I was in, in a startup company in California with that said straight up to me um at a uh, it was a, a conference like a trade conference that we were at and um, 
a couple of days in, uh, kind of took me to the side and said, you know, we care about you. We think you do great work, but we prefer the version of you that shows up. We prefer the version of you that's that cares and is present. And by all of that, they were saying we prefer the version of you that's not clearly been on the source until four in the morning and uh, missed their first meeting today. It delayed the relationship of cause and effect of a problem and a reaction, but it still came around, you know? Yeah. And, you know, I can really resonate with that because I was in a similar situation where, you know, I had a very good friend of mine speak to me in a very honest way saying, you know, you need to sort your life out. This isn't the will that you should be. And I always found this a very delicate balance since I've stopped drinking is if I see anyone else who seems to be struggling or there's a, another version of them when they drink, you're in that balance of thinking, well, if I say something, is it going to affect them? Because I know if someone had said something to me maybe three years before, I would have probably just told them to piss off. You know, so lost inside my own ego and I didn't see things clearly and I thought, you know, I'm perfect. But it was actually someone being brutally honest with me that helped wake me up. And I find it to be a very delicate balance of not offending or even potentially losing someone you really care about, but also not watching them go down this really destructive path. I think I think you're right, it's delicate. And I think that old adage of people have to be ready them, themselves to, to quit something like drinking. And I think it's a little bit of that. But I also think it's really important to have a peer group that might want to hold you to that better version of yourself and point that out. But like you said, there were for the absolute most part of my young adult life as somebody and then they did point out to me you, you know you drink a little bit much or you're not being the best version of yourself i would tell them to shove it and you know you have to get to that realization yourself i know in 12-step programs they refer to that similar sensation of your rock bottom right like what's the most bottom point for you that led to you getting better and I think that there is that gray area of what you can do as a friend. If you love somebody that you know has got a problem or is struggling, just make sure they know that if they're ready to make a change, when they're ready to make a change, they're there. But I think the, the, the danger of putting it on people is, is creating shame around it. And I think that, as you and I have probably talked about on other occasions, I think shame is the most powerful emotion to drive relationships with alcohol and numbing and things like that. 100%. And I think one thing that I try to do now is not to is not to speak to anyone with any judgment, because I, I truly believe that a problem is personal. You know, I, I knew people that drank very little and they found it to be such a huge problem where there was people that drank the same amount as me. And even to this day, they think oh, it's not really a problem. So a, a problem is kind of personal, whether you're or not you're in denial about it. But yet when you were talking about rock bottom, we normally think about rock bottom being you know, losing your job, having a breakup, uh, maybe losing your flat, things around you externally going pretty south pretty quickly. Whereas for me, I considered myself to be at rock bottom, but I was probably in one of the best situations I'd been in in my life because I was yeah. functioning and I hid it so well. I was, I was a master deceiver when it came to it, which also made it very difficult when I told people I wanted to stop because they were like, you're absolutely fine. Like, look at your life. It's great. But it's kind of the mental rock bottom you hit where you think, I can't do this anymore. I can't keep putting up with the lies, the stories, the hiding, the, the shame, the guilt, the hangovers, the come downs. It just, it all became too much. But it's like 
that that's the public version of yourself. And I think that it speaks to you and I have had this conversation before, which is there was a you when you were maybe 10, 11, where you have mm. this like exuberance and innocence and enthusiasm. And you were able to get joy out of simply being and, and being amongst friends and family and doing things you enjoy. And as you go through school and there's all these pressures and decisions on you and you look at your peers and you're trying to figure out what you want to do and introducing alcohol in that situation to me exacerbated this divergence from me being who I am and being very present for my feelings, emotions, and truly facing up to the, the struggles of that. And then the drinking me, which was, this is fine. I'm going to have a drink. I'm going to go out. I'm going to have fun. And yeah. over the years and the years and the years, gradually these two people becoming so far apart, the, the true self was looking at who I was and in my behaviors and my public person and who I was to other people and, and didn't like it, didn't recognize them, didn't want to be that person. And that was my rock bottom, that kind of profound, I don't want to be the person that I am being. I, I don't like that person. I'm not happy being that person was a massive motivator for me. Yeah. And you know, I find this so fascinating even till now that, you know, sometimes I personify who I was when I was drinking as someone else. And I'll even give him a separate name because yeah. I would feel, you know, me personally, I would feel like I would be there at the first drink having a good time. And then I wouldn't return until the following day. And I would think, what happened? Who was that? Who came out? And I, I found it easier to think of that as another person that was was only there, you know, fueling on alcohol or drugs. And that was the person that a lot of people would see. And I'd wake up in the morning and I'd think, why should I be apologizing? It didn't feel like me. I, I don't think it was me. And, you know, everyone always says, you know, being drunk is no excuse. And that became a big thing. Whereas for me, I felt like it was an excuse because I'm thinking it definitely wasn't me. I wouldn't do these things. My morals don't align with the actions of last night. However, I think it was still massively in my control whether or not I let him out. And that's what I didn't grasp for so many years because I kept thinking, I'll go into this, it's fine, I'm going to be okay. But he would always take over. And it was only once I got to the point where I thought, I just can't let him out anymore. And then that is in my control and that is my responsibility now. Yeah, I wonder if you've had a similar experience in that. Uh, what's been hard, I think, as I get years into recovery, and I'm four years at this point away from from my last drink. Congratulations, by the way. <laughs> yeah, thank you, man. There were the things that I knew I did wrong, right? The things that in the people in the moment when I was drinking said, you didn't show up for this, or last night this happened. And those were the things that, you know, relatively early on in recovery, I resolved to talk to those people about and address. But what has been, I think, a real challenge as you move further into your sobriety and being much more intimately aware of who you are and who you want to be is then people coming out of the woodwork years later, people that you didn't even notice kind of put a distance between themselves and you and move away because they didn't, they saw a pattern in you that they didn't like. And that's something that has been hard, like acknowledging that there were good people in your my life that I lost along the way. And I didn't even have the 
self-awareness to realize I'd lost them. Uh, that's been hard. I can imagine. But also I can relate to it. And then tell me a little bit about the time that you were coming to the realization that you might need to make that change. You might need to make a decision to get away from this person you were, you were becoming. Yeah, I was living in California at the time. I was spending a lot of time away from family. I was on, you know, an eight hour different time zone, which basically meant by the time I got to my 5 p.m. end of my work day in the UK, it would be uh, middle of the night. So I was living, in terms of my family, a very solitary existence. I wasn't speaking with them. And I was going to the pub every night after work. I had a lot of stress from work. I was drinking until last orders every night or most nights what I could afford. And um, I think I mentioned to you, you know, I had this moment where someone pointed out to me that they very much enjoyed the version of me that, that showed up and knew how kind I could be and how positive an influence I could be. But there was always this other side, this person that was could be flaky that didn't show up. And there were a few turning points for me. I mean, we all have embarrassing stories from when we were drinking and it wasn't any one particular moment. It was more a sequence of happenings of events of waking up, not knowing what I did last night or waking up next to somebody that I don't know, or really remember speaking to. And it was after that conference, I mentioned my friend Liz had pulled me aside and I resolved that day to speak to my mum and dad and say, look, like I am, but I have this problem. I don't really know what to do about it, but I know that I'm going to try and do something about it. And I don't want to be in the dark with them about having this issue. Mm. But far from that being the first time that I thought about it, I'd been experimenting with not drinking for years, for like probably the previous three years. And you know, it was like being sober curious is how I'd describe it. I'd read books here and there and uh, I'd gone for like a few days not drinking. I mean, I could scarce make it more than a few days. I think probably a week was the most that I'd made it. So you kind of, you had it in the back of your mind that you needed to have a break, whether it not be the long run, but you kept thinking, right, I need to, I need to slow down with this or at least, you know, have a few days off. Yeah. And I think that in my head, I was squaring away as a health thing sometimes like, mm. oh, I just feel better when I don't drink, which obviously you don't, you do, you know, you feel much better. It was a productivity thing. It was health thing. And it wasn't really the full hard acceptance that I had a problem yeah. until, you know, when I finally quit. And I think in part it was, I started interacting with a few people in my life uh, that I'd seen had taken the step. You were one of them. I mean, we weren't in the same place, but I, I remember vividly you putting on social media that you'd taken that step and how impressed I was. You know, you were someone that I resonate with on so many levels and had spent time with even since our days of being at school together. Yeah. Um, and another person, a guy, Brian Cannon, who I'd done some work with, he was actually the photographer and designer for Oasis and The Verve for years. So this kind of rock and roll icon who I'd worked with professionally and I had so much respect for. Yeah. Who'd gone, yeah, enough's enough. Like it, it's not fun for me anymore. And it was almost like being given permission, you know, to yeah. just give, give myself that shot of happiness. That can be one of the, the trickiest things is, you know, I, I've, I've been in that situation myself where I want to take a break. 
I want to take some time off, but I feel like I can't make that big jump into accepting that it's a problem. I feel like that word problem is what can hold so many people back because, you know, in a lot of people's minds, it's either alcohol's fine or I'm a full-blown alcoholic or something like that. It's, it's this idea that it has to be, it has to be all or nothing. And I think that was the biggest turning point, especially for myself, when I suddenly got to that point where I said out loud, I think I have a problem. But you can't qualify that with the amount you drink, what time you drink. None of these things qualify what a problem is. It's just if it is becoming problematic to your life, if it is affecting relationships, career, your mental health, your physical health. For me, that's when it becomes a problem. And if that's the basis of it, then it doesn't take much to qualify a problem. Because that's no. nature. That's what it does. It affects all of those areas. I think language is a really important part of this. I think a lot of my reticence for a long time to go, yeah, I have not got a good relationship with alcohol and I might have a better relationship without it, was the avoidance of I'm an alcoholic. You know, I knew my granddad was an alcoholic. I've been told he was. And I didn't want to attach myself or define myself by this term. And then, you know, frankly, going to, even when I was just curious, I went to an AA meeting. And I think that AA has so many merits. It, it wasn't a program that I saw working for me in the long run, primarily because it was this very much interlocking your identity with I'm an alcoholic. I always will be an alcoholic. At the moment I forget I'm an alcoholic, I'll be drinking alcoholic. And I think that that's a totally valid way of thinking. And if it works for you, it works for you. AA works for a lot of people. For me, it was, I like who I am better when I'm not drinking. I like my ability to improve and sustain relationships, with my family, my friends when I'm not drinking. I like how productive I am. I like how much I value my life when I'm not drinking. And it was all about this kind of positivity and this gratitude for me not drinking rather than this fear of, you know, the drink, like I'm an alcoholic. It's going to end me if I, you know, if I, if I go down that path, but it doesn't make it any less true. I don't know that things would have ended particularly well in the long run if I carried down that path. Yeah. And I think this is also why we resonate a lot because my experience was very similar in the sense that when I stopped, I didn't really know many people who didn't drink. And a friend of mine said, you know, come to a meeting, see what it's like. And I thought, yeah, that's going to be great. But the one thing which I struggled to get on board with was the labeling. You know, I think, you know, having a label such as alcoholic can be one of those things that pushes people away from ever admitting a problem. And then once they finally break at rock bottom and they take on that label, they can't let go of that label. That label is with them forever. And in the same way that, so many people ask me, are you in recovery? And for me, I say, no, I'm recovered. You know, I, I feel like just like any other wound, it can heal and you can deal with whatever trauma, or whatever issue led you down that path. And you can move on in the same way that, you know, we were when we were 12 years old, we didn't think about this. You know, we may have had the same uh, genetic or psychological uh, issues that might, you know, that led us down that path. But you can revert fully back to that mindset. And I feel personally, that's where I'm at now, where four and a half years down the line, you know, I, I don't get tempted. I don't I don't have any lingering fear that I might go back to it because I feel like I fully dealt with what was leading me there. And, you know, I, I even had it a few days ago where someone said, you must have incredible 
willpower to go that long without it. And I, I said, well, you know, we were having lunch and I said, well, you haven't banged your head on the table at all this lunch simply because you don't want to. I haven't had a drink simply because I don't want to. You're not tempted to bang your head in the same way that I'm not tempted to have a drink because it serves no purpose and it only leads to pain. And, yeah. I, you, know, you know, every time I used to say that around, you know, a lot of my friends that are part of these programs, they would say, as soon as you say something like that, you're in fear, you're in danger, it's going to get back to you. And, you know, I've had this mindset for almost four years now, and I'm at no point has it ever posed any danger. You know, I'm in full control of how I think and who I am. And that's not by accident. It takes a lot of work and it takes a lot of different techniques, which I've found over the years and manufactured a specific routine day to day. And I, I can tell when, you know, I might be dealing with something or I need to relax or my mind is going crazy. And to find healthy outlets for that, I find is, uh, is one of the keys to successfully breaking free from it. I agree with that. I mean, I always have that humility that there may be one day that I do just because there were, there was a huge chunk of my adult life that I did and mm. I didn't have a problem with doing it. And then there's this more recent chapter, this recent four years of my life that I haven't, and I haven't, cause I don't want to, I don't have it. I don't wrestle with it on a daily basis, but I do have this immense security in the cause and effect that when I chose myself and my health and my relationships over drinking, that it just continues to get better. And that cause and effect relationship is the absolute best part of it. It's like, why would I? Why yeah. would I? I gained so much. It seems absurd that I would go back to drinking when it's not drinking has given me as much as it's given me. I think you feel the same way. It certainly feels that way. Yeah, definitely. I mean, for me, it's, uh, it's crazy, especially in the position I'm in now where, you know, one of my biggest passions and, and now what I'm doing is helping people to break free from it. It's fascinating to watch them go through the exact same process, maybe slightly different because everyone's journey is a bit different, but watching these, these people, you know, go a week, and then two weeks and then start to notice things. And it just seems to get better and better and better. And it makes you realize and it makes them realize that it's just so crazy that we can we can stay so long trapped in this world. And I think one of the biggest things that does keep us trapped is the idea that it should be all right. It should be fine. The world says that drinking is fine. So it would be it's kind of you're the odd one out if you decide that you want to be better. You want to have better sleep, better relationships, better work. And it's one thing I find fascinating is the world is changing in such a way now where health, mental health especially, is becoming such a pivotal point of everything we're doing and physical health as well. You know, people will look at what they're eating, look at their diet, look at their sleeping hours. They track everything, but no one seems to address or fewer people seem to address the idea that the alcohol is ruining all of these or at least limiting you from truly reaching your potential. Did you quit smoking before or after you stopped drinking or was it at the same time? So I, there was one night I had where I was smoking a lot. I was drinking a lot and I was taking a lot of cocaine and it was yeah. the next day without any sleep. I was uh, on the way up to the Lake District actually. And a friend of mine said, you need to sort your life out. And I remember 
I started thinking like, um, yeah, I think, uh, I think I do. And that was the last time I ever took cocaine. But then that weekend, whilst we were up there, we were still going to beer gardens. We were still, you know, smoking cigarettes. And then it was on the train back to London was when I was like, right, I want to take a break. And it was that weekend was the last cigarette. And I took a two yeah. week break. And after that two weeks, I went on a date and I ended up drinking. That was the last time I drank. I didn't do any drugs or smoke on that night. So I kind of stopped cocaine first, then cigarettes, then alcohol, all in the space of about two weeks. You know what's really funny is that yeah, I, I don't know. I don't know many people. Like I've did it in the reverse. So I had my moment where I was going to stop drinking, and this is kind of there wasn't really any logic to me at that point. I was just I was at my wits' end, and I, I knew I needed to change things. But I carried on smoking. I carried on smoking for two years after. I even did cocaine after I stopped drinking. This was maybe a few months into my sobriety and I traveled back to Spain. I think it was for Carnival. I went to go and see some of my old mates and I diffused the bomb, which I think is a great analogy to tell anyone that is finishing drinking and, and like a coping mechanism. If you want to help yourself not drink when you're around people that maybe you previously do, did is reach out to them in advance and tell them you don't drink anymore and it's important because then you don't go into that social situation going i wonder how i'm going to tell them yeah and giving yourself that opportunity to walk up to the bar and give in and just have one yeah but but what i did is i told them that i was not drinking and then when i got there we went out for carnival i had a great night i was just drinking black coffee and had a lot of fun going out dancing with my friends but they were drinking and doing blow and i think that whilst i was still in this very formative part of my sobriety and figuring out what these new parameters were these new codes i want to live by i was like well maybe i can still do drugs and alcohol is the problem i tell you what doing coke without alcohol was horrifying yeah, it was basically just all of the up all of the anxiety all of the nervous energy without any of the you know, the damper that goes with booze without any of the calm that goes with it. And yeah. that in itself was enough to go, oh, I'm never doing that again. But yeah, it was a bit of a backwards way of getting to not doing coke and drinking. Yeah, well, I love the analogy diffusing the bomb because, yeah, it's something I find super important because, you know, I've, I found it within myself. I remember the the girl I was with when I drank for the last time on that date, she then left for a few months and when she was coming back, I was so excited to see her, but I was so nervous about telling her I didn't drink. I mean, it's crazy now, you know, four and a half years in, I, I don't have a problem telling anyone that I don't drink. But back then it was such a such a scary thing. And I'm like, you know, is she going to find me boring? Am I, is it, you know, I, I think about this for days and days. And I finally thought, you know what, before I wait three months on this, I just have to get it out. I have to say it. And I remember I actually did tell her. And the response was, well, I don't think I can be with you because I love drinking too much. And yeah. I remember being like, oh, and it was a test to be like, well, maybe I should carry on drinking just so I can carry on dating her. And yeah. I thought, no, do you know what? I'm going to I'm going to do me. And if someone doesn't like me not drinking, then surely that's not someone who's going to value me in the right way, because, you know, you don't be with someone because they drink alcohol. You 
if you don't want to be with someone because they don't drink, it's because you have maybe some guilt within yourself about your own drinking or, but I found it so useful to diffuse that bomb to kind of get it out there. Because as soon as I said it, the weight was off, there was going to be no pressure on that first encounter. Like you say, arriving at the bar, having to try and tell everyone then it's such a more difficult situation. If everyone knows in advance, it just makes it so much easier. You still might get a bit of stick or uh, resistance, but nothing like what it would be if you just surprised everyone in that moment being like, you remember me, the guy that used to do coke for three days in a row? Well, I'm not even going to have a drink tonight. It would be, <laughs> it would be like, what? What are you doing? Uh, I mean, as time goes on, you, I mean, as you know, you don't, you, I don't think twice about it. I, I went, Actually, at the weekend, as you know, I went I went to a football American football match. Went to watch the Atlanta Falcons against Chicago Bears, and this was one of those environments that years ago would have been a minefield. Right, yeah. you go into a game. There's beer everywhere. And on top of that, I'm going there with one of our main suppliers who's paying for a box, <laughs> and I know for a fact that our sales rep from that supplier loves a beer and i knew i mean it, i knew it was going to happen i didn't i didn't do anything in advance and eight thirty in the morning before i even you know get ready to go to the game i get a text from this guy the sales rep just saying it's, it's bloody mary sunday exclamation mark <laughs> and that was the opportunity to disarm the bomb i didn't i was like well maybe you know maybe i'll get there and that you know it, it won't be like that. Of course, I get there. We walk into the box. There's a, a fridge stocked with five different varieties of beer and alka pops and all that stuff. And um, the guy goes to me. He's there with his area manager, and they're like clearly just trying to get a drink down all of us and have a good time. He goes, "So, what beer would you like?" And I said, "I'm I'm all right on beer, thanks." And he goes, "Oh, not a beer guy." And I said, "I haven't had a beer for four years." And he goes, well, we've got to do something about that. And I said, no, honestly, I, I don't, I don't drink. And he goes, oh, well, we can, we can get you some liquor from the bar. And I was like, no, I, I don't, I don't drink. And uh, it just be, it did become this. I think four years ago, I would have just wanted to uh, shrink into, until I was five inches tall. Yeah. Um, but I found it pretty funny. You know, it, it was really a highlight of how, centered that the human experience is now around having a drink whilst we're with others you know yeah and I, I i find you know that situation if i was in that when i first stopped it would have been like let me just end this pressure and drink just to stop everything but like you say you know the more exposure you get to it just the easier it gets the same with everything the exposure kind of numbs you to go oh this again yeah it's fine and when you arrive at that point where it's just fascinating to watch other people's reactions because you know without judgment because I, I think it's super important not to have any judgment because you know i don't judge anyone because i was probably much worse than they were but i think it's good to see their reaction because it tells you a lot about their own relationship you know if someone is yeah if someone is very much against you not drinking you know it, it shouldn't make any difference if you drink or they drink or no one drinks if you want to drink you have a drink but the fact that you rely on other people can say a lot about you know, what the whole point of that alcohol is. And then there's some people I tell and they're just, they're not bothered. They think, oh, I don't really care. The same reason why I made this podcast is because I love talking about this stuff. I think it's fascinating in a world where it's almost taboo to go against it or taboo to talk about it. And 
I think that's one of the reasons why, you know, a lot of people struggle to make that decision because, you know, it's in the word anonymous. You know, if you have a problem, you don't talk about it apart from with other people who can understand it in private spaces. But I think it's important to tell everyone about this so everyone can hear because this is something that everyone does and it can feel like you're kind of trapped inside this world of drinking, almost like a zombie where it all seems like it has to be done. It's the right thing. It's the fun thing. But if you put drinking and not drinking the pros and cons on a piece of paper, it would be a, it'd be a slam dunk. You're like, wait a minute, why would we ever go down this road of drinking? It, it offers nothing. Everything is so much better when you're not drinking. I just find it such a, a fascinating world. I just, I love talking about it. Oh, me too. And I, I think that it's more important than ever. If you, if you have the capacity to, to talk about it and be open about it, to do so. I mean, I think there's so many great things about AA and 12-step programs, but it is a bit like Fight Club, you know, first rule of Fight Club, don't talk about Fight Club. <laughs> I think it encourages shame, which is the root emotion, I think, that just drives so much of this repetitious, like going back around drinking. And mm. for me... Yeah, like when you first mentioned that I'm doing a podcast, I was like, that's amazing, mate. And then you were like, do you want to be on the podcast? <laughs> oh, my God. And, and once I got past that, I became more and more excited about just being open about it. And I often say to people very early in a conversation, if it becomes about alcohol, make it clear, my experience of alcohol is not anything to do with your experience of alcohol. I don't have problem with you drinking i don't have mm. concerns about you drinking but if you want to talk about it let's talk about it i think we can do that all day yeah. yeah i love that man and i you know it was the same thing for me when i first thought i'm gonna i'm gonna talk about this stuff you know on camera and put it on social media i remember my heart racing being like this isn't the done thing no one talks about this online it's very yeah. rare I mean, now that i've you know become fascinated in it i have found a few people that actually do things like this and they talk about it but it's uh it's funny because it's not the most well received if you're if you're about to go out for the weekend it's friday night you're about to have a few drinks and then you see me pop up being like hey guys drinking really is not good and you know you just be like oh shut up but then <laughs> as it gets to sunday night and monday morning you know the views go up and everyone's like oh yeah this is fascinating i need to i need to look into this how do i do it and it's you know again no judgment i was in that cycle of like Monday and Tuesday would suck. I need to sort my life out. Friday and Saturday, I'm like, what was I on about? Life is amazing. Let's get Big on it. Time. It's that loop. Once you break that loop, which is why I tell people, you know, the idea of stopping forever is super terrifying. But stopping for two weeks, it's doable. And two weeks is, you know, around the time where you get a bit more clarity and you think, all right, let me reassess this. What, what is my relationship with alcohol like? And is it serving me the best? Am I happiest while I'm drinking? And then you can start to make decisions. If you want to go back to it, you go back to it. It's, uh, it's completely on you. But I feel like the amount of times people have the worst hangovers or the worst come downs and they still just go back to drinking, they give it another chance. But a lot of people don't like to give not drinking a chance. But all it took me was one proper chance of not drinking and it changed my life. I think that there's a lot to be said for that. And that's something that they do. A lot of 12-step, a lot of AA is... is built on is you really just have to get through today why don't you just give yourself that gift of giving this a go for a day and see how you feel yeah. and evaluate again tomorrow i'm never going to say to someone i'm never going to drink again just because 
there was probably a time when I was drinking. I would say there's never a time I'm not going to drink. Well, here yeah. I am. And I also think that it's terrifying, the idea of committing to anything in, in, indefinitely. And just commit to giving, this, give, giving yourself a shot at trying something differently. And if it feels better, well, you might just want to carry on down that path. And any path that involves you continually looking after yourself and feeling better and happier for it, well, you're probably going to stay the course, you know, and, and there might be wobbles, there might be blips, but um, that's part of being human, isn't it? Yeah. And I think that's, you know, one of the reasons why I used to drink and take drugs is because I felt better when I did it. And it's exactly the same reason why I stopped drinking, because I felt better when I did it. And it's kind of, yeah. you know, we're all chasing to be happy or more content or feeling more peaceful within ourselves. It's it's the irony that sobriety gave me exactly what drinking gave me, just in a, a much healthier way. Yeah, and I think with more longevity. Definitely. <laughs> well, I've absolutely loved chatting to you today. It's been so nice. And I know that so many people that are listening to this are going to not just resonate, but also find everything you're talking about so useful because I know I would have found it useful. And it's definitely one of the motives on everything I do is I think back to what what would I have liked to see? What have, what would I have liked to hear at that time where I just saw no way out and it was such despair. And I think, yeah, I think you're going to, you're going to help a lot of people talking about this. No, I'm glad. And, um, yeah, thank you for the opportunity to come and, and talk about it. I, you know, it's not something I do intentionally. I, I talk to people occasionally about not drinking, but having holding this space to spend an hour and talk to one of my oldest friends, about one of the things that I'm most proud of is a lovely way to spend an evening. Um, so thanks for having me on. And anytime you ever want to chat, you know where to find me. Thank you for listening. If you or someone else you know struggles with alcohol, cocaine, or any other drug, then please reach out for help. You can find the link to my online course, the online community, and all the coaching programs both on this podcast description or by clicking the link on my social media profile. Trust me, you are not alone and there is a way out. All you need to do is make that first step. I hope you enjoyed this, but even more so, I really hope it helps.